I'm Siham Sireen, and you are here for Better Conversations. So you sort of internalise the fact that you're not supposed to talk about this. So you're supposed to put a smile on when actually all you want to do is lie down in the corner of a room and curl up. But actually, you need to put a smile on because you don't talk about your mental health. And so a big part of the stigma, I think, is the self-stigma that society society puts on you. So to come out and share your story, it, it is complete acceptance. It's accepting that this is who you are. And yeah, you know, we see, we hear the cliches, and I'm not that big a fan of them. Bring your whole whole self to work, and it's okay not to be okay. It's definitely not okay not to be okay because we, we need to kind of work to proactively be be better than not okay. It's okay to talk about not being okay, but actually, it's accepting of who you are. And when when we can accept who we are and, and talk openly about that, a magical thing happens. And that is the burden, the heaviness of, that we're carrying of hiding and pretending to be something we're not, is lifted. While we're gifted with speech, conversations, really good conversations, don't happen as much as we'd like. In this podcast, my guest and I deep dive into all the corners of what makes a conversation awkward and uncomfortable or warming and memorable. Welcome to Better Conversations with me, Siham Sirene. And this week in the UK is Mental Health Awareness Week with the theme of kindness. I'm really interested in the types of conversations we have. Great conversations and rubbish ones, lighthearted and tougher conversations. As many who were sharing their stories this week in a bid to make mental health an acceptable reality of life know. My guest today is Rob Stevenson, a mental health campaigner. He's the creator of FormScore that helps you work out how well you're feeling on any given day. And he's about to pull off the first global 24-hour mental health virtual summit. By the time you listen to this episode, he should be fully recovered. Rob has his own story of mental ill health, which he shared with me. And what's remarkable is that he only recently came clean about what he spent so many years hiding from people he worked with. Once he accepted his condition and found a way to talk about it, he felt a burden lift. He says being open about it is by no means a cure, but it certainly has relieved the burden of keeping it a secret. He's campaigning for change about attitudes and support for mental health. He wants to smash the stigma and he's enlisting the help of senior leaders, some of whom he invites to be listed on Leaderboard, an annual list of leaders who are open about their experience with mental ill health. So I was curious about how his conversations sound, what they look and feel like. He describes himself as a strong man who's learned to be open and authentic and to talk about his vulnerability in a way that's disarming and gives others permission to share their struggles. One of my questions was, what would he say to leaders who would like to demonstrate the same vulnerability that he's found, but are apprehensive about how that might change other people's perception of them? And another question was around how well-equipped he believes our teenagers may be in expressing their emotions. But I began first by asking Rob, 
who he needs to influence on the mental health agenda. It's a really interesting question that I, I, I need to influence quite a lot of people because what I do um, professionally is it's all around inspiring change and influencing change on the mental health agenda. So specifically, it's senior leaders in workplaces, it's board level individuals, but also it's it's employees and it's everybody where I try to influence and inspire them to prioritize their, their mental health. And I'm trying to do that remotely now. Um, in one of my projects, uh, I need to influence investors. Um, and at a more societal level, I've even been trying to influence government. So I think it's a really big range, to be honest. Mm. Can you give us an example of what one of those conversations might look like? Yeah. So, for example, if I'd be talking to a senior leadership team or a board of a, an organization, I would be trying to make them walk away thinking they need to do more on the, on the mental health agenda. They need to prioritize the mental health and well-being of their, their employees, treat it as a strategic priority. So that conversation would be, I think, really framing the, the issue. And, and I do that both at a, at a kind of macro level, but really tied into my personal experience of living and working with bipolar disorder, and then sort of take them on a journey as to really why investing in the mental health and well-being of employees is, is is the right thing to do, but it makes good business sense. So it's a bit, I guess, that that conversation, it's it's influenced, it's a bit like I'm pitching a concept to them and taking them along on a, on a journey to try and get to an end point that, um, that, that is inspiring change. And within that conversation, what's most important in terms of how you come across? Uh, I think what's most important in terms of how I come across is authentic, uh, open and vulnerable. So I think the reason I'm I'm quite effective at what I do is is because it comes from a place of sharing my personal experience of, of my mental health challenges. So that that authenticity, that vulnerability, I think disarms people on the issue and makes people think actually we've got this confident man standing in front of us who is being open about a topic that society says perhaps you shouldn't be open about. And so it's that vulnerability and, and openness that I think uh, is really important. Mm. Are you up for sharing a little bit of that story um, with us right now? Absolutely, yes. So I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 30, but I can see the signs of it going back to, to my late teens and, and my 20s. I'm 48 now. So it was a long time where I knew I was different, but didn't know that I had it any sort of mental health challenge. I was either the life and soul of the party, complete center of attention, or I was uh, withdrawn thinking I was antisocial, thinking I didn't like, like people. And I tell the story of my 30th birthday where around the table, we've got all of my best friends in this Moroccan restaurant in London. And when it's time for the cake to be brought out, the music stops, the lights dimmed, and the, the cake is brought out in this procession of singing and dancing and drums. And you can almost imagine you were in a sort of souk in Marrakesh. That cake is then presented to the head of the table. But that was my best friend, Smithy, because I was alone in somebody else's flat, not, fa not being able to face being out on the night of my birthday celebrations. And soon after that, I was out of the workplace for three weeks. And my boss said, I think you need some help. And she'd researched the numbers of some local therapists and suggested I went to the doctor, which I did. And, and I was diagnosed with depression, which later became a bipolar 2 diagnosis. and 
for the next few years, I was in a really dark place, you know, trying to come to terms with this, with therapy, with medication. And then over time, um, and with the love of those close friends and family around me, I learned to manage my condition. I learned that sleep is really important. Exercise is really important. Social connections is really important for maintaining a positive sense of mental health. And, and became very effective at doing this, would still end up in, in periods of depression where I couldn't get out of bed uh, from time to time, but actually w- was effective in managing it. But I think the issue for me was I did so very much under the radar with only those close friends and family knowing about it. And that took me right through to, to 2017 when I was inspired to come out and share my story. Well, what part of that, Rob, was about acceptance? That's a really interesting question. I, I think a lot of this is about acceptance. Because of the stigma of mental ill health and the fact that you, unlike your physical health, you don't feel generally, one doesn't feel generally comfortable in saying, I've got depression or I've got anxiety or I've got bipolar disorder. So, and, and it's changing and we're working hard on changing that, but that's the state of play and certainly was when I was going through my, my 30s. So you sort of internalize the fact that you're not supposed to talk about this. So you're supposed to put a smile on when actually all you want to do is lie down in the corner of a room and curl up. But actually, you need to put a smile on because you don't talk about your mental health. And so a big part of the stigma, I think, is the self-stigma that society society puts on you. So to come out and share your story, it, it is complete acceptance. It's accepting that this is who you are. And yeah, you know, we see, we hear the cliches, and I'm not that big a fan of them. Bring your whole whole self to work, and it's okay mm-hmm. not to be okay. It's definitely not okay not to be okay because you, um, we, we need to kind of work to proactively be be better than not okay. It's okay to talk about not being okay, but actually, it's accepting of who you are, and and when when we can accept who we are and, and talk openly about that, a magical thing happens. And that is the burden, the heaviness of, that we're carrying of hiding and pretending to be something we're not is lifted. And then there's a sense of lightness that can come. And with that sense of lightness, what can happen is that we can feel um, less challenged by those conditions that we've been hiding in the first place. So I can tell you, I get less episodes of depression and mania since I've been open than I did before. And and many, many people I speak to on my Inside Out leaderboard and other people who are open about their challenges would, would, would say the same. Wow. And I can only imagine that that's because you've removed an element that probably frustrates um, things altogether, right? Which is the stress of trying to hide it. Yeah, absolutely. There is a stress in, in trying to hide it. And the, as I say, there's a lightness in being able to be yourself. And I think you've removed one big, big, big pressure. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't make everything go away, mm-hmm. but it does remove an additional burden that we don't have to be carrying. And actually, you know, we're talking about conversation here, but human connection, it, for me, is so, so important in, in terms of our mental health. And it's often overlooked. So some of the most uplift, uplifting meetings that I can have are where I'm talking to somebody who also experienced a mental health challenge. We both share our stories. Then we talk about whatever business that we, we've got to talk about. And we walk away feeling uplifted with a boost in our form scores. Now, that, that, that connection um, and, and sharing of that is, 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 is really magical. For sure. I, I agree with you. I think that ability to be able to be open and discuss exactly how you're feeling 
what's on your mind. Um, and I was going to ask you, and you somewhat answered it, but I wondered if there's anything else, how your conversations have changed since you have been open. That's really, it's a really good question. Since being open, um, and, and particularly when I, we're talking about, when I'm talking to people about this, this topic that I'm so passionate about of, of mental health, I, I would say the conversations are more valuable. They're, um, I'm just trying to find the right adjective here. They're, they're richer, they're, they're just more important and they're, they're deeper. I think deeper is the right, is the word I'm looking for there because, because of that connection, you're connecting on a human level about issues that we don't normally connect on. And, and mental health isn't the only way of doing this. It's, it's obviously what's, what I'm passionate about. But I, I've had the same sort of business conversation with the same person before and after me being open. And the richness, the depth of that conversation has been much better, um, much richer, much deeper, because we've shared how we're feeling as humans, rather than the business bullshit that we would normally talk about. I'm not sure if I could swear on this, but I probably will. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, you're welcome. <laughs> it's a bit late now, isn't it? But yeah. um, so, you know, the, the, the business bullshit that we would normally do is replaced by something that is meaningful. And then we talk about the, the, the issues that uh, are on the agenda of the meeting. So it's richer, it's deeper is the way I've described it. It's almost like uh, it's almost like setting the scene. It's that uh, getting a sense of where our energy level is and allowing for some synchrony. Right, we actually can exchange something where we feel similar. We feel we've got something in common, and then that makes the rest of the conversation so much easier without the mask that you know of of well, I'm I'm fine, and we're here, and we're going to discuss. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right, and and I think. You're sharing something of value, and and um, yeah, I'm a fan, a big fan of uh, Brene Brown and and her work, and this this gift of of vulnerability, and you're trusting someone with the vulnerability, and if you dare greatly, in her words, to do that, then what you'll get in return is a much richer, deeper conversation because you've given, and that person will then feel comfortable in giving back. And I think the reason that um, successful in and successful is not quite the right word either, but the reason I'm effective in what I'm doing with the Inside Out Leaderboard and publishing a list of business leaders who are open about their mental health challenges is because I start every conversation with sharing my story and my challenges and the benefits of being open for me. And I think I'm, there's, a, there's a gift in each of those, those, those sharings that we do that, that put people at ease. Going first, right? You, uh, you, you make it safe, and you make it okay, and you're effectively saying whatever, whatever it is, it's fine, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is, it is the. You know, we talk a lot about creating safe spaces, particularly in the workplace, particularly on the mental health agenda. The, the the way we create safe spaces is with vulnerability and daring greatly to go first, and that's why I'm really passionate about business leaders doing exactly that because when they do that everybody else feels comfortable doing it they're not the only role models in an organization but they can create the safe space for culture change let me ask you this because it's a question i get asked by leaders who are in in sort of that uh, space of wanting to be open and vulnerable and honest but feel they may be oversharing or it might undermine them in some way what would you say to them I'm going to reflect on that for, for, for just a second. If you're coming at this from an authentic place, then it, it, it's not oversharing. It's actually giving that gift to, to, to people of, of you sharing something 
that is important and human. And I'll give you a, a lighter example of this, actually. So the CEO of Goldman Sachs, um, uh, David Solomon, I don't, I'm not sure if he's still the CEO, but David Solomon is a DJ. In, and in his spare time, uh, under the DJ moniker of D-Sol, he likes to spin a few tunes, right? And so I found out this because because I'm a DJ and I thought it was brilliant. So I a big poster on LinkedIn. I, I put a post out there saying, hey, David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman's at the time, is a DJ. And this post got 30,000 views. It really resonated with people. And why is that? Because we're showing something really human about you know, one of our leaders of one of the preeminent financial institutions in the world. It's humanness. And so to those... CEOs and C-level individuals who, in this, in my case, have a mental health challenge and feel that they should be sharing it, but are reluctant to because they're thinking that it would be seen as oversharing. This is what your people want. This is what your people want right now because it will help them deal with the challenges that they're facing. And I think translating that to broader issues than than just mental health, we want to see authenticity and vulnerability in our leaders, and we need to see that through in, through uncertain times. And then as for the second part of your question around, you know, I think how would they be perceived or would it undermine their authority? Again, on the mental health agenda, I think it shows ultimate strength to speak out about an issue that is stigmatized. And all of the leaders that I know that have done this feel, without exception, actually, feel that their um, ability to lead has grown since being open and since being authentic. That's brilliant to hear. Um, That's a result, right? Yeah, it's, it's a, it, it is a win-win, but it's getting back to that daring greatly proposition. And and look, I know where we're at um, in, in the world. Men, mental ill health is really stigmatized and you will be perceived differently. And it's different in certain territories as well, in certain countries, if you are open uh, about the fact that you have a mental health challenge. There is a wave coming that is changing that. And in 10 years time, yeah, there will be no need at all to publish a list, in my opinion, of business leaders who are open about the fact that they've got mental illness or have had mental illness. So it is coming, but I, I yeah, it's got to feel the right time for an individual. But I think what I would say is that when people do it and come out and, and be authentic, they wish they'd have done it years ago. Well, and as you say, it's a relief, right? It's a, uh, there's a, a, there's a release from not having to pretend. Um, you um, post daily, right? And you post your score out of 10 daily. What response do you get from people when, you, when they first see that from you? I think I get quite an interesting response when, when I post my score. And the, the whole form score concept, it's, it came out of a tool given to me by a therapist years ago. And so I've been using this score out of 10 to track my mood or my form, my mental health for years. And as a campaigner, I started posting it on LinkedIn and, and my email signature, just as a bit of an experiment to talk about smashing the stigma, actually. But the reaction to those posts uh, are quite interesting. So, uh, And some of them unexpected. So people would say, I really like getting an email from you with your score in the signature because I'm curious to see what your score is that day. And then others um, have said that they really like it when they see me post a high score, an eight or a nine out of 10, because that gives them a boost in their own score. And I'm like, really? Is that, is that, is that a thing? You know, is, is, is a positive score infectious? So I've tested that a little bit and it seems it is. And then there's the obvious one around when you post a, a, a low score, the level of support and, and empathy and human connection that, that comes back. Because 
people care. Um, people that know me care, and people that don't know me care. You know, there's that human level of connection. So I'm really evolving this concept into a, a, an, an app that will allow people to connect around their scores. Um, and I'm pretty excited about that because I think we're at a stage where people know that that mental health and well-being is is an issue. They don't necessarily want to talk about it because of the stigma of mental ill health. So my my take on that is, look, let's get people talking about their form, a score out of 10. It's quite, again, non-threatening, creating that safe space in a different way. But let's connect on it. Let's share it and let's support each other when low. Let's celebrate each other when we're um, going through tough times and we're coming out of it. But let's connect on it. I, I think that's brilliant. As I'm listening to you, I have a question in my head. Imagine if on LinkedIn there was a functionality as standard as your name that had a score and you could basically you check in, right? What impact do you think that would something like that would have? Well, that's exactly what I'm what I'm building really, um, albeit not on LinkedIn. Um, maybe LinkedIn they quite like to license it from me at some point. But I think the impact that would have, and this is what I believe, is um, we would be able to facilitate the human connection that we've just been talking about um, and the vulnerability that we've been talking about um, across a digital platform and across and, and remotely, which is really, really important right now because everybody is working remotely and will be changing the way they work even when we're coming out of the, the lockdowns that we're in. So... I think that ability to have some functionality where people can safely share how they're feeling that doesn't get into the stigma of, of mental illness and mental ill health, but just can, allows people to connect on, on, an, on, on this issue of how are you today? I, I think the impact will be really positive. I think people will feel more connected. I think people will support each other better. I think we can facilitate you know, better humanity in, in our workplaces and, and within our teams and communities. It's, it's a bold ambition, but I think it could have a profound effect. Well, that would be wonderful, wonderful place to get to with it. Better conversations. We all want to have them at work. Have you often felt that your colleagues haven't always received your communication in the way you'd like? Or that you struggle to express yourself clearly on issues that matter? When someone can communicate with clarity, confidence and empathy, their team becomes inspired. As leaders, part of helping our team to do their job effectively is to motivate and guide our people to deliver on their goals. And when we're equipped with coaching and communication skills, it provides a platform to be our strongest and most confident self, a leader everyone trusts. Did you know it's the number one skill that sets the top leaders apart from the rest? That's why we've created a 12-week online course hosted by executive coach Siham Sirene, helping you to navigate those meaningful conversations with skill and compassion. Enroll today at leaderswhocoach.today. What in the conversation, what are the skills that you think make for that great connection that you've talked about? That's a good question. What are the skills that, that make for great connection? And I think we've touched on what, what allows it to happen, which is the openness, the vulnerability, the authenticity. I think then if, if we've created that landscape to have the conversation, for me, it is about passion, engagement, um, eye contact, body language. Is this person really feeling um, what you are saying? Um, and it, And it's it's really easy to convey that if you are talking about and living, you know, your passion. 
um, which, which I do. I've worked previously in executive search, for example, where I had to try and influence people in conversations at, to try and win business. That always felt a bit more like a chore to me because you're in sales mode. I wasn't completely passionate about what I was selling. Um, and that was a, a, a much more difficult process. Right now, I find it really easy to talk about the stuff we've been talking about and convey that sense of, of passion and, and create that level of engagement. In those conversations, what do you say you're you're really good at? I think I'm good at taking people on a journey. I think I'm good on on my topics of inspiring people. Uh, you know, again, we can talk a little bit about when I'm off my topic because I think I'm slightly different then, or or quite different. But I think I'm good about taking people on a journey, uh, inspiring them, thinking that it's okay to challenge the status quo, and leave them with this sense of energy to galvanize action. And, and I th- again, I think I do that from the, the position of passion that I have about it. And when you sense that someone is maybe ready and open to sharing, but is a little bit hesitant, are you aware of, of any sort of adjustments or what you may do to kind of make them even more comfortable? With what I'm doing, um, in, in encouraging and, and helping people become open about their mental health. I think you've got to understand um, that you're coming from a, 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 a position where you know, we're dealing with humans and how they're feeling about an issue that they've kept closed for many, many years because society has told them that they have to. So I think from the starting point, this isn't a sales conversation. This isn't an outcome where we've got to get to there and they've got to be saying, right, we're going to, I'm going to come and share my story of depression tomorrow. This is making them feel, feel comfortable with the, the, the process and what we're doing, inviting them to participate if they feel comfortable, allowing them space to, to reflect. So I think it's obvious where somebody has got to go on a journey to, to get to that point. And it's pretty obvious to me when, yeah, it's not going to be right for somebody that year. Maybe they need to just get 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 comfortable with it for this year and then think about joining the leaderboard another year. And it may never be right for somebody because it, being, being open publicly may not be required for them. So I think it's it's trying to pick up on those signals um, and, and recognize that look, we're not we're not trying to sell something here. We're trying to give people the opportunity to uh, and invite them to to join a movement that that could be beneficial but it's actually their journey it's their story what essentially you're saying is there's there's a need to slow down either the conversation or a, allow the time for the individual to kind of come to that place of accepting that you know this is this is possibly something good to be able to talk about there were some lovely words that we you were using in there, which one was inviting, which and and just giving them kind of space, because I think so often we rush through our conversations. Even as you were talking, I sensed you slowing down in almost like I don't know if you were imagining yourself in a conversation and what that what that would look like or feel like. One of the skills that I teach leaders is just to, to ask a question and um, hold a space for as long as that person needs it. And also be gentle on, you know, what they first articulate may not be exactly what they want to express or say. Um, do you find that? Absolutely. I mean, silence is such a um, underused and, and powerful, I want to say tool. It's not, we can use the word tool, but 
it, it's something wonderful and powerful that if we can, um, and it is in this context, it's giving people space. Um, in, in other contexts, silence can be used to um, to negotiate. And and I was, I, I've had a lot of training on the use of silence in negotiations because mm. it, it gives people people are uncomfortable with silence, but sometimes they need silence to process what they're thinking, and it's it's definitely underused. I think for me the. It's interesting you, you you said my my pace changed because I was obviously reflecting there on on times where people might have been struggling to tell their story to me and and needing that time and space and it comes sort of naturally to me to to follow that because I know from experience how difficult it can be and the other point is is it's a really privileged position to be in to sit across the table or you know having a coffee with someone when they're sharing their their story that they've kept locked up for for many many years and that can unfold in very different ways for people um so it's it's crucial to give them space silence permission all of these things to allow them to to tell me their story and for you personally what have you found out of all of those those sort of um skills or techniques or whatever which one have you found the hardest to adopt Again, good questions. I'm liking these questions. So for me, for me, um, I tend to, I tend to want to fill spaces with answers. Yeah, I tend to think that I know it all, even and 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 I don't. I know that I don't. I'm mature enough to know that now. So I, I tend to, in, in general life, even if I don't know something, will have a view and put it forward, and you know, need to be seen as the person that has the knowledge. And it's it's a failing of mine. So I think through this process of having conversations with people, where, where there is no there is no call to do that, there is no ability to interject in their stories. There is there is that need to slow down and give them space. I think that's probably made me more open to having better conversations when when my natural instinct is to kind of wade in with a view. Yeah, the fact that it's not your story and it's not your space to step into is has taught you the power of that the power of being able to just listen yeah correct absolutely nice and what do you think in generally in in conversations what do you think gets in the way of having a good conversation i think it's what gets in in the way i think it's ego i think it's fear um i think it's um uncomfortableness um bias you know preconceptions and general, and I'm going to I'm going to swear again. General society bullshit. You know, I think I think all of these things can um, just just put a blocker to actually having meaningful conversations. And again, getting back to to, to my example on mental health, those blockers seem to be removed when you when you share and you give that gift of vulnerability. But I think it's those things that can often get in the way um, in, in general conversation. Yeah. Yeah, my guests certainly talk a lot about ego being the thing that kind of gets in the way so much. But I think also sometimes when you're in a leadership role, you are paid to have the answers or to know or to have a point of view. And because we put so much weight on that, it puts a lot of pressure on leaders sometimes to feel like they should have the answer. They do need to know and they they need to be, you know, have a, a a resolution for everything when uh, when actually they probably don't yeah i think for me leadership is about 
the responsibility of making the call at the end of the day. But to make that call, I think the most effective leaders will give people around them and surround themselves with people that will help them change their mind. Um, I think the best leaders will will change their mind a lot and will allow people around them and, and actively recruit people around them that provide those opposing views, the challenge thinking, that bring new ideas. And then when the call needs to be made, they'll make a more effective call because of that. Tell me more about the changing mind aspect of leadership, that it's okay to do that. If you are running a, a business, a sports team, a community, or whatever it might be, a government, anything that has value, you can't be expected to be across every decision, strategy, idea that, that can happen in that, that ecosystem, that organization. And so I think the most effective leaders, um, and you know, I've heard Jeff Bezos of Amazon talk about this a lot, is actually they, they will cha- he will change his mind a lot based on the input that, he, that, he, that he's given. Because actually you're employing and you're working with and you're engaging with in whatever you do, experts in elements of running that organization. Um, so as the leader, you can't be an expert in all of that. So if, if you're not going to change your mind at the end of some discussions based on the view of an expert, why are you hiring the experts? You know, you might as well not have bothered in the first place. So for me, it's that confidence of actually to say, yeah, I'm wrong on this. Um, your, your view is right. I'm going to change my view to that, uh, to, to the same as yours because of what you've told me and being open and I guess trusting and having that level of um, confidence in the people that you have around you. Mm, right. Well, you've hired them because they're great. <laughs> Now it's probably the time to listen to them. Absolutely. Yeah. What would be um what would be a fantastic outcome for you personally in terms of mental and your your campaigning around mental health over the next year? In 12 months time, I would like to really have made an impact in um how people think and act around their mental health. I'd like more and more people to be using the concept of the score, the form score, the out of 10, to really reflect on um, what is driving their mood, what is driving their mental health, and then being able to promote positive mental health and influence it. So that's a vague answer. Um, that I, I don't have a particular number I'd put on that, but I would like to really influence hundreds of thousands of people, um, approaching millions of people with this methodology that I think can help people on such a scale. That would be tremendous. You've got an event coming up as well that you're, um, which I find in itself quite intriguing. Twenty four hours, you're going to stay awake. Having said that, sleep is really important to you. I'm wondering how you're going to manage that piece, but mainly this conversation that you're going to be holding over a twenty four hour period on mental health. Yeah, so this this is called G twenty four. It's a global, it's the world's first global twenty four hour mental health summit. Three events across three main time zones. So um, starts at nine a.m. in Sydney and finishes at, at five p.m. in San Francisco time, all, all remote and virtual. I, I mean, this is this is totally me. I came up with the idea of doing remote networking events on mental health. And I thought, if I'm going to do that, why don't I do a global 24-hour event? Why not? And um, uh, yeah, why not indeed? So, but I, I think the purpose of this was to, as, as I saw the world change and, and people go into kind of lockdown and remote working and that that physical human connection be removed. I hate the word social distancing, by the way. It's physical distancing, but we need social connection. So as people are physically distant, I wanted to find a way to 
keep the conversation going about mental health um, and allow people to connect around the mental health agenda. So that, that was where the idea and the motivation for the idea came from. In terms of the conversation in the day, I mean, I certainly won't be doing all of it, um, but um, we've curated a, a world-class agenda of CEOs, of thought leaders, of CEOs of charities to really get a perspective on mental health and well-being in the workplace uh, as a result of the, the coronavirus and remote, remote working and distancing. And so really excited about it. I think... Um, Staying up for twenty four hours will be will be a challenge. And, um, um, it's a while since I've pulled that sort of all nighter, and I recognise that there is a a, a, a compromise in, in in my my well being there. So I'll make sure I recover afterwards. But I think it's it's a, just an interesting way of of bringing people together globally um, and sharing some perspectives across the globe on an issue that is uh, affecting everybody, which is the mental health impact of the the coronavirus crisis. And what I find fascinating about it, Rob, is I wonder whether being remote or being online um, in some ways makes it easier for people to talk about their mental health in a way that maybe in person can be challenging. And I'll give you an example. So having a conversation with a friend about, you know, will the next generation, will my teenagers have good social skills? Um, given how much they are online and they interact online, they're playing games online and have a lot of hope that they will be. And that actually what I see of them is they're very expressive and in touch with their emotions and their feelings. And in fact, the online presence, their online presence and their friends and so on, especially, um, you know, with, with friends who they know have, and have met in person as well as, you know, friends that they've never met um, and have only met online. They have a real capacity for expressing themselves and speaking truthfully about how they're feeling or where they're at. Do you think that may, may go, you know, to the other extreme or do you think that actually they will probably be well positioned for managing their mental health? Really good questions in there, um, and there's a quite a you know we, we could probably talk about that for for an hour on it on itself. I think there's 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 a few issues in there that I'd I'd probably pick out on really. That one, we might as well accept that we're in a digital world. So you know what what um, what, what was seen as good conversations for us growing up, the way the way children are communicating now and teenagers are commuting uh, communicating now. Is very very different. Uh, the example I'd give there is Snapchat. I don't know if you've ever used Snapchat. I don't understand it. Um, I don't. Um, I, I love the concept of it, but it's it's basically communicating through pictures rather than communicating through text or words, and that's quite an innovative way of communicating. So they are actually, as you say, expressing emotions through mm. the use of images. TikTok is another one. Um, I understand that one a little bit more. I don't do the little dances, but um, I quite I find it quite engaging from time to time. But you know, again, you're you're communicating in expressive, quirky, funny ways um, that other people can relate to. So I'm an optimist. So I think the you know, there's no point you or I looking down and saying how how our children are communicating is wrong because it's different to how we we've communicated. I think. We definitely need to make sure that that alongside that, people are still developing that ability to look someone in the eye and develop a human connection. Because let's face it, that is one of the most beautiful things about being human. That it, it's it is more difficult to get that level of engagement 
digitally and remote. But I do strongly believe that the generation coming through are used to being more open, more expressive, whether it's the use of emojis, photos, dances, whatever it might be, and whatever else comes next, that that will be good. Um, and that will that will mean that the whole kind of stigma of mental illness just won't exist and doesn't exist for this generation because they're used to and the generations coming through because they're used to being open. I think then you've got to look at another side of the coin, um, the multi-sided coin that this would be in that actually the the amount of time that the children would be and, and, and young young people would be spending online or in front of a screen, what is that doing? And that, that can't be positive. And so more research needs to come out on the impact of all of this. I think it's complex, but you know, in in terms of the 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 way that we're communicating, I think it's really interesting that that how the creativity and, and the openness of, of young people is coming through on some of these platforms and some of the ways that they're doing it. And I don't think we can sit here as, or I can sit here as a forty-eight-year-old middle-aged white man, albeit with a mo- mohawk now, um, <laughs> and, ju- and judging that Street because. Cred. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, you know, I can't give too much of too much away right now on this in terms of the form score app, but that is also helping um, how we might communicate around how we're feeling. That it will be a different way of communicating again. So it's interesting. So I'm not as I'm not as critical or cynical as as many would be, but I am wary of the the amount of online time that that the kids naturally gravitate to. And our lockdown hasn't necessarily um, helped that at all. Um, if anything, it's kind of made them lean into that a lot more. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the, the highlight of my kids' day and the highlight of lockdown is screen time for them. It's called that, you know, it's a reward for doing everything else. Um, you mm-hmm. know, um, my, my daughter plays Minecraft and loves it. And, um, you know, that, that, that enables the rest of the day to, um, to, to work as semi-efficiently as possible, but it's rubbish parenting. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't be giving yourself a hard time. I think it is an incredible time. I think that's tested, um, many families, many relationships, right. And, um, and it's put us under a whole host of things, not just change, but pressure and stress and, and worries you know, it's all kind of come together um, in one big hit. And um, yeah, I, you know, the, the, the parenting side is, uh, and then I guess this comes through to, you know, the place when you come to a place of acceptance about our own mental health, which we all have, is some compassion, right, towards ourselves and others. And that, um, you know, we, we could all do with less judging of ourselves and other people, just it's it's uh it doesn't help uh the situation does it no massively and and you know compassion and kindness this um yeah the theme for mental health awareness week uh in the uk is kindness this year and and i think you know accepting as you say the position that we're in accepting that we're not going to be in certain certain instances the best homeschool parents because two of us are doing working jobs and our world has changed um, you do the best you can. You should congratulate yourself for doing it and say, well done. Um, this, this global crisis is affecting people on an individual level in so many different and unique ways, depending on their circumstances. 
So I certainly won't win Homeschool Parent of the Year. I'm really comfortable with that. Um, I'll do the I'm best I can. I'm very comfortable with it too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, we I, I, on Friday, I just had to kind of make the decision, look, let's let's put a movie on. I'll sit with you guys watching a movie. I'm not going to make you do this, this schoolwork you don't want to do. Um, and let's just chill out a little bit. And actually that facilitated a, the level of connection that's much more important as to whether they they hit that that hour of extra work that I was trying to get them to do. And having that sense of, well, as you, as you say, it's acceptance um, and letting go of perfectionism or, or ideas of what life should be and what should happen um, and, and being compassionate to yourself. Absolutely. It's essential right now. Well, we could, I've got loads more questions, but um, it's been fantastic talking with you, Rob. I've got one final question for you. Rob, what would you like listeners to be left with? What would I like uh, our listeners to be left with? It is this, asking the question, how are you today? And answering it honestly and authentically, where it comes to your mental well-being, will change your life. And then asking that question of people around you and sharing how you're feeling will really help facilitate better human connections. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Rob. My absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed that. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Better Conversations with me, Siham Cyrene. And if you did, leaving me a lovely review and rating on Apple Podcast will help me reach more listeners who want to have better conversations at work and in their private lives. You can check out show notes at betterconversations.co forward slash podcast. If you're a regular subscriber, brilliant, lovely to have you back. And if this is your first time, hit subscribe, leave a review and tell a friend. A screenshot and an Instagram story would be going above and beyond. And I would be very grateful. Please tag me at Siham Cyrene, all one word, S-E-H-A-A-M-C-Y-R-E-N-E. And of course, I'll tag you right back. So what would you like to hear my future guests and I talk about? Or perhaps you would like to be my guest because you've got a strong point of view that you'd like to share or kick about with me on the podcast. Drop me a note, podcast at betterconversations.co. I'd love to hear from you. And if you are a leader who knows you could achieve so much more in your career and be way more influential by having better conversations and stronger relationships, then do consider enrolling for my 12-week online course, Leaders Who Coach. You'll find the curriculum, videos, and a whole load more at leaderswhocoach.today. Thanks for listening. I'm Siham Cyrene, and this has been a better conversation.